As you're being seated, turn in your copy of God's Word to Amos chapter 7. Amos chapter 7. And if you don't have a Bible or you don't have one on your phone, um, we've got a bunch back here on our resource table. Feel free to grab one of those. And if you need one, please keep it and just let that be our gift to you today. Amos chapter 7. So today we're back in our series called The Hidden Prophets. Uh, This is where we've been for a little bit. And in this series, we're trying to wrap our heads and our hearts around 12 prophetic books in the Old Testament that are often called the minor prophets. And these books are Jonah, Amos, Hosea, Micah, Zephaniah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Obadiah, Haggai, Zechariah, Joel, and Malachi. In other words, the books you've never read before, right? That's what we're studying right now. And we're actually going through these books in chronological order of events versus the order that we actually find them in the Bible. And the reason why we're doing that is because we think it's going to help us better align with the historical context and, and thus hopefully better understand what's going on as we engage with these books. So as most of you know, we started with Jonah. Uh, We're now nearing the end of the book of Amos, and then next we're going to move on to Hosea. So it's been a minute since we last looked at Amos, uh, at least a couple weeks. So let me give us a quick refresher, and then we'll jump into today's text. So at this time where we pick up in the book of Amos, the nation of Israel is divided into two kingdoms. There's essentially been a sort of civil war. The country has split. There's a northern kingdom that is still called Israel or sometimes called Samaria because that was the name of the capital city. And then there is a southern kingdom that is called Judah. And Judah is notable because that was where Jerusalem, the seat of Hebrew worship, was. Our setting in Amos, though, is the northern kingdom of Israel. And at this time, the king of the northern kingdom is a man named Jeroboam II. And Jeroboam II is presiding over a period of great financial prosperity and military might. He has expanded the borders of Israel, and he's brought great wealth into the country. And in many ways, it's a time period that kind of winks back to the time of David, which was sort of a golden age. However, what we learn as we read through Amos is that all of this has been accomplished on the backs of the poor. And Israel has largely forgotten or ignored or disregarded the law of God. And at the same time, they have also started worshiping many other gods. Amos, the prophet, The subject of this book, or the one who is speaking on behalf of God in this book, is actually a citizen of the southern kingdom of Judah. Um, But he is called by God to go to Israel and declare the word of the Lord. And the word he is called to declare is not positive, right? It's not good. He comes declaring that the people have completely lost their way, and as a result, there are going to be consequences, So Amos has declared this prophetic word in a couple of different ways thus far. We first saw him presenting like a series of short poems where it seemed as if Amos was primarily talking about the sin of other nations that were dotted around Israel. And and, and what we saw was that eventually 
even though he's talking about all of these other nations, eventually the laser beam turns on Israel and it becomes clear that that's really who Amos is talking to. That's the subject. And Amos has used this rhetorical style of talking about other countries, Ammon and Tyre and all these other places and their sin. He's, he's done that to like lure Israel into listening to what he has to say, only at the very end to go, but now let me tell you about you. That's how all of this started. And what we've learned thus far is, is that the wrath of God that is going to be coming on Israel is going to look like destruction and exile. What Amos says to them is, you think of yourself as first among the nations, as like the greatest nation or the best nation, but, but let me tell you, you're going to be the first to be carried away into exile. So it's almost, it's almost a little bit like what Jesus will eventually say when he says that the first must be last. Right? It's like you guys think you're, you're so great and you're so powerful and you got all the money in the world and that nothing can touch you, but you've abandoned me. And so here are the consequences of that. Now, it's possible that this has all seemed a bit repetitive to you because Amos has essentially been saying the same things over and over again. It is repetitive. And one thing I would just point out to us is that we see God's grace in his repetition. We see God's grace in his repetition. He repeats things to us as well over and over again because just like the Israelites, we also tend to be hard of hearing. Maybe we don't want to hear what he has to say. Maybe we we don't want to do what we hear him saying to us. But yet, he continues to repeat himself. And this is an example of him extending grace to us. Rather than being a one-and-done type God, he is this long-suffering, patient, forbearing God who, even when we don't want to listen and even when we don't get it, he continues to repeat himself over and over again. Unfortunately for Israel, though, God's kind of come to the end of his forbearance in this season. And what we haven't gotten a sense of thus far is exactly like how the people of Israel are hearing and responding to Amos's words. What do, what do they think about Amos? Like we've seen him present this series of short poems. Uh, part two of Amos was like this, this series of monologues where he was kind of seemingly saying the same things over and over again. What we haven't gotten a sense of is what are people doing with this? Like, how are they hearing? Are they ignoring it? Are they ambivalent? Are they, you know, are they angry at Amos? Are they repentant in any way? We don't know. Today we move into what we could call part three of this book. And here we get a series of prophetic visions, which is a new thing for us here in Amos. We haven't seen visions yet, but we also get a glimpse into how the people of Israel are receiving Amos' words. So I want to begin with this famous vision that Amos has, and then we're going to look at the response. So this is chapter 7, beginning in verse 7. We're going to read a little bit of this, and then we'll come back and read some more. So Amos 7, this is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. 
So first things first, the word of the Lord. <laughs> first things first, what in the world is a plumb line? What is a plumb line? This is a plumb line. It's a weight on a string. It's used in construction, uh, particularly in wall building. Uh, and what the plumb line does is it helps you determine if your wall is plumb, which means vertically straight, it, like perpendicular to the ground. Like you want a wall to be level, right? But you also want it to be vertically straight as well. Because if you are even slightly out of plumb, and you just keep putting more bricks and more bricks and more bricks, it eventually becomes top-heavy, and even if it's just slight, it will eventually collapse. So you want your wall to be straight. When I was in college, I spent a summer in South Africa, and one of the things we did while we were there was we built a church building in a remote Zulu village, and we were using plumb lines because we were laying brick, and we were laying brick walls, and we want this church building to be strong and secure and so God gives us this morning through Amos, he gives us this picture of a plumb line. Now let me ask you this question. What biblical genre are we reading this morning? What genre is this? That's, that's honestly one of the most, most important questions that we can ask whenever we're studying the Bible. I mean, this, this is made up of like 66 books. There are at least 40 different human authors written over a period of like 1,200 to 1,500 years and, and as a result, there are a number of different literary genres to be found in the Bible. So as we're reading through it, we have to ask the question, what kind of genre of literature are we reading? And, and there's historical narrative, right? The kind of very linear history. Uh, there's law. There's poetry. There's what we could call wisdom literature. There are letters. Most of the time we're reading Paul in the New Testament. We're reading a letter. There are biographies. The Gospels are essentially biographies of Jesus. So, so what is the genre here of Amos? It's prophecy. This is prophecy. And, and the reason why it's important for us to ask that question is because knowing the genre will tell you what to expect in the book, right? It'll give you some clues about what is to come. And biblical prophecy is scripture that recounts visions or specific messages from God about the future. Let me say that again. Biblical prophecy is scripture that recounts visions or specific messages from God about the future, and so one of the things that we can expect to find when we're reading prophecy is the use of metaphor and symbol, symbolic language. In other words, if we're reading about a dream or a vision, then more than likely the contents of the vision will have some sort of metaphorical nature, even though they will have a literal interpretation or meaning. So today, in Amos' vision, he gives us this picture like God is standing beside a wall holding a plumb line. And Amos gives us this critical detail about the wall. Not only is God standing beside it with a plumb line, but Amos tells us that the wall was originally built using a plumb line. Did you notice that? It was built with this. And now God's standing by it, holding it. And so what that tells us is that the wall, when it was originally built, was straight. It was as it should be. It was as the builder intended it. Now, God's not literally somewhere holding a plumb line. 
These images are representative of something else. Jesus did the exact same thing in his teaching. Jesus taught in a form called parable. It was very similar in a lot of ways, in which the elements that he was talking about often represented other things. If you think about one of the most famous parables, the parable of the sower, or the parable of the soils, as it's sometimes known. Like a person goes out and is scattering seed, and the seed falls on all kinds of different soils. Some of the soil's rocky, some of it uh, falls among thorns, some of it falls on fertile soil. Now, the point of Jesus' parable was not seed and soils. The point of Jesus' metaphorical or symbolic language was to represent the seed of the word of God or the seed of the gospel that is being scattered and the different types of people who are receiving it, the different types of soil that it falls on. Some of it's rocky, right? It can't penetrate it. Some of it is among thorns, meaning it might spring up a little bit, but it ultimately gets choked out. Some of it actually falls on fertile ground where it takes root and produces fruit. So this is Jesus' symbolic or metaphorical way of describing the gospel taking root or not taking root in the lives of other people. So I say all that to say, don't, don't be like thrown off by symbolic language or metaphorical language. Some people have grown up in church settings where they've been taught to read the Bible as being 100% literal in all cases. But what we have to remember is that, and it's what I said a minute ago, there is a literal meaning. Like, there's a literal meaning to the parable of the sower, right? It literally is talking about the gospel going out and the different types of people who receive it or don't receive it. And the same thing is true here. It's just using symbolic language to describe that. And, and I think one of the things we have to realize is that this isn't... This isn't like this secret code that we have to crack. I mean, most of the time, it's pretty easy to understand what the Scripture is trying to communicate to us. The point is that we would understand it and, and apply it to our lives and synthesize it into our being. So don't be thrown off by this this morning. God says, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. And he says, I will never again pass by them. Like, behold, which means look at this, see what I'm doing. I'm setting a plumb line in the midst of my people. So, so right there, right there, God tells us that the wall is not a wall, right? God's standing beside the wall in this vision, but he says, behold, listen, look here, understand, I'm setting a plumb line amidst or amongst my people, Israel, so the wall is not a wall. The wall is Israel. And it's like God's standing beside the wall going, you know, what's, what's happening here? You know what? I built this. It was straight. It was what I intended it to be. And yet, if you've been with us through this study of Amos up to this point, you know that the wall, the wall is not straight. Right? The wall's leaning big time. And yet... God's really the only one who really sees it for what it is. Like God's the one who sees what other people don't see. One of the most chilling things he says is, I will never again pass by them. He's already done that once, right, in what was known as the Passover. People were enslaved in Egypt, and the Lord spared them and rescued them. But he didn't pass over the Hebrew people because they were sinless or because they didn't have faults 
No, if you go back and read the story in Exodus, he passed over them because they were covered by the blood of a lamb. Unblemished lambs were sacrificed by the Hebrews across the country of Egypt, and the blood was wiped over the frames of their doors. And when when the Spirit passed through the land, it passed over the homes of those that were covered by the blood. The blood of the lamb protected the people of Israel. But now God says, I'm not doing that again. I'm not doing that again. At least not right now. Verse 9, the high places of Isaac shall be made desolate and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Now that's not metaphorical, right? That's, That's as literal as you can get. And something like 50 years later, that exact thing would come to pass. So this is one of the visions. Amos sees several. We're not looking at all of them. This is one of the visions that Amos has seen and declared to the people. And as you can see, the meaning is not unclear here. The meaning is not obscured. It's pretty plain. The Lord instituted the Hebrew people as his people. He he gave them his law, right? Like this perfect holy law. He he put this this command on their lives, be holy because I'm holy. And and yet now he's coming and he's throwing the plumb line on it. He's going, this is way off track. This is not what I intended this to be. How are the people receiving this news? Look at verse 10. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, came to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah, and eat bread there, and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel. For it is the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the kingdom. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a prostitute in the city and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword and your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. So Amaziah, the high priest at Bethel, tells Amos, Man, you're upsetting everybody with your words. Like, what are you doing? The land, he says, the land is not able to bear all his words. Now, Bethel was a sort of knockoff Jerusalem of the north, right? When the kingdom was divided up, the first king, who was also named Jeroboam, Jeroboam I, a couple hundred years prior, he chose Bethel as the new place of worship for Israel. 1 Kings 12 recounts this story. And, and what it tells us is that um, he selected priests to be priests at Bethel who were not from the tribe of Levi. So, so God had set up a priestly tribe among the people of Israel. 
and it was the Levite tribe. And yet Jeroboam comes along and goes, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm going to pick my own priests from, from anywhere and anywhere. So, so he does that. And, and then what it tells us is that he basically concocted his own high holy days. So, so rather than following the tradition of what the Jews had done, Jeroboam just makes up his own like religious holidays for the people to observe. And he also leads the people in worshiping false gods. And interestingly, one of the false gods that Jeroboam set up at Bethel was a calf. Like this just continually, over and over and over again, is one of the gods that the people of Israel come back to, is this image of a calf or a bull. And there's a sexual uh, like component to that. There's like a fertility component to that. It's like extraordinarily pagan, just the more you dig into it. You're like, this is like textbook paganism. And yet it's what the people of Israel are doing, and it's what they have done in the past as well. So Bethel, as you can imagine, is like a frequent target for Amos because in many ways it itself, the city of Bethel, is like a symbol of everything that the Lord is angry about, of everything that is an affront to God. But, but look, what I really want to seize on here is Amos's response to this. right? So, so what we don't get here is any of his like internal monologue in the way that we do kind of with guys like Jonah or even like with Moses. Like, we don't know if Amos is conflicted in any way. Like, like Jonah, if he's like struggled to be obedient or if like Moses, if he's tried to convince God that I'm not the guy, I'm not the one you want doing this. Like, we don't know any of that. What we do know, though, what we do see here is that ultimately Amos is faithful to do what God has called him to do, no matter what the consequences are. Like, when we're talking about Amaziah, we're not talking about a low-ranking official in the nation of Israel here. Like, we're talking about somebody who could easily have Amos destroyed. What Amos says is, I was, this is verse 14, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I love that. I love that response. Do you think I just chose to be here of my own volition? Right? Do you think this is all my idea to just come up here and say these things that I know everybody's going to be upset about? No, I wasn't a prophet. I wasn't even the son of a prophet. Right? I, I was out there following sheep around in the field, just like Moses, by the way. And then the Lord plucked me up and he sent me here. So you're going to hear what he has to say. Amos doesn't apologize for what he's doing, his presence there, the words that he's declaring. In Amos' mind, this is what God wants, and so this is what will happen. This is what I will do. Man, what if your life was that black and white? What if you also had that clear of a sense of God's calling in your life? What if you could speak with that kind of confidence? And, and here's a thread, and, and it's, it's one of many, but here's a thread that I find in the lives of all those in Scripture who are truly obedient to God. And I think this is a big part of, of why a guy like Amos can do what he does and, and, and say what he says. When receiving God's love and approval becomes my primary desire, I am less inclined to make decisions based on receiving the love and approval of other people. 
Let me, let me just say that again so we get it. When receiving God's love and approval becomes my primary desire, then I'm less inclined to make decisions based on receiving the love and approval of other people. Or put another way, when I truly desire the love and approval of the Father, I am more willing to be disliked by others for his sake. I think this is possibly my biggest struggle in life because it's, it's deeper. It's like a heart-level thing. It's deeper than just like surface-level sins that might present. I'm an Enneagram 3, and that may not mean anything to you, but, but it basically means that I'm someone who wants other people to be impressed with me, right? I, I want to do a good job, not just because I want to do a good job, but because I want to I be praised for having done a good job. Deep down, I want your approval and your love, and it can be hard for me to like, keep going if I feel like I don't have it. And you may not be just like me. In fact, you're probably not. But we all have some level of that, right? We all have some level of need to be loved and approved of by others. And the reason why is because it's like a defense and coping mechanism for living in this world, right? When we feel loved and approved of, we feel safe. When we are accepted by the tribe, we're no longer an outsider. We're no longer alone. And listen, guys, this is one of the ways that the gospel should radically revolutionize our lives. It should radically revolutionize our lives. When we truly embrace the good news of Jesus Christ in faith, we are embracing a good news that says that you are eternally loved and accepted by the Father, because the righteousness and sinlessness and obedience of Christ has been given to you. It's been attributed to you. It's been laid on top of you. That's what we believe to be true of the gospel. That's why it's good news. That I'm not getting into heaven or getting into the kingdom or the family of God based in any way on my own merits. No, no, no. The gospel says your merits are actually being thrown out the window. So you've been a good person your whole life. It doesn't matter. It doesn't measure up. You can't be good enough. You aren't. No matter how great you are, you aren't. You need that to go away, and what you need to take on, what you need to come in, is the perfect, sinless righteousness of Christ. Because standing before a holy God, that is the only thing, that is the only thing that will reconcile you to him. There is nothing else. That's why there's an exclusivity to the way of Christ. It's because there is no other way. When he says, I am the way and the truth and the life, he means it. So be good, be moral, be kind, because at the core of this is this call to love our neighbors as ourselves. But recognize that outside of Christ, you're incapable 
of truly loving your neighbors as yourself, which is why we repeat it every week. It's why we confess that we haven't done it every week, because we haven't. No matter how much we've tried to, we haven't done it in a way that measures up to the way that Christ has loved his neighbors, to the point of death, even death on a cross, Scripture says. So this is incredible. Like, like this is the stuff, when I say we come into this place to celebrate every week, this is the stuff that we're here to celebrate, is that God's approval and God's love is being extended to us no matter what what us is, no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, no matter what, what we have thought about or what's been in our hearts or what's actually come out of our mouths or out of our lives. And when the scripture says that this gospel of Jesus Christ brings freedom, it doesn't simply mean freedom from the penalty of sin and death. It also means freedom from living for the love and approval of other people. Because why, why do you need the love and approval of other people if you have the love and approval of your heavenly Father? I no longer have to, be, have to try to be good enough or impressive enough for you or anyone else because the creator of all things has declared me to be approved. So ideally, my loyalty, ideally, my loyalty has now shifted away from this world, and, and primarily to him. And so the question is no longer, what do I want or what do you want? The question is no longer, what do my parents expect or what does my social group expect? Like, like what do I have to do to win them? The question is, what does God want? Right? And isn't he justified in, in asking things of us based on what he has given for us? To ask somebody like Amos to leave his livelihood and his country and to pick up and go somewhere else to be hated and to declare things that no one's going to want to listen to? Man, if that's not a biblical theme, I don't know what is. Leaving the place where you're from to go somewhere else only to be persecuted and killed? Y'all ever heard a story like that before? It reminds you of Jesus who stepped down out of heaven, who Hebrews says became lower than the angels, only so that he would be rejected and killed? Man, what does God want? For Amos, this seems to be all that mattered. Like, you think I'm here declaring all, all of these horrible things because I enjoy being disliked? No, I'm just, I was just following the sheep around, and the Lord told me to do this, and because his will is my primary desire, hear now the word of the Lord. So in closing this morning, I want to enter into just a few minutes of, of personal examination. And I want to ask three key questions that I think we all need to be able to answer, but, but more than likely, we can't all answer these today. Three key questions. So if you feel like you can't answer some of these, that's okay. Uh, I mean, Justin and I, as Justin mentioned earlier, we'd love to sit with you and, and talk through some of these things and pray about this with you and seek to discern and listen to the voice of God together. But if you would, let's, let's just bow our heads and, and seek to focus our, our minds and our hearts just for a minute. Three questions. Seeking to be honest with yourself, whose love and approval do you most desire? 
Whose love and approval do you most desire? I don't, I don't think it's wrong to want your spouse to love you or your kids to love you or anything like that. But does my desire for their love actually supersede my desire for God's love and approval? Next, this is a big one. Where do you find your sense of safety and security? Many of us have all kinds of props in our lives to help us feel safe and secure. It could be money, it could be weapons, it could be a certain type of training, it could be knowledge, education. What is it that you're basing your safety on? And then finally, how would you articulate God's call on your life in this season? What would you say the Lord has called you to do right now? And I would encourage you guys this week, just in your time with the Lord, that you would spend some time with these questions, seeking to answer them, but not just so that you come away with answers, but so that ideally more and more of who you are is released in freedom to see yourself as one who is accepted and loved by our Father, and that He's evidenced that through giving his only son so that we might be loved and accepted by him. And he wants us to see ourselves in that way. And a lot of times we get into trouble because we just don't. So when we talk about our identity being in Christ, this is the kind of stuff that we're talking about. Coming to view myself rightly in light of Jesus' death and resurrection. And so let's go to him in prayer and thanks this morning. Father, thank you for the truth of your word, for the grace that you've extended to us through oh, calling us to repentance over and over again, Father, repeating your truth to us over and over again. And Father, we give you praise and thanks this morning for the beauty of your gospel, the, the incredible news that even though we are not good enough, and even though we have sinned and fallen short of you, you've made a way for us to be restored and renewed, and that truly we have the opportunity to be born again, so that you don't see us as we were, so that you can see us as those who've been reconciled by Christ. God, we thank you. And so, Lord, help us to exorcise more and more of these things from our lives. Help us to find our love and acceptance first in you. Help us to find our sense of security and safety first in you. And, Lord, give us insight and clarity on the things that you've called us to in this life.
at this time. And Lord, fill us with your spirit and give us a boldness to step into whatever it is that you have for us, Father. Even if, like Moses and Amos, it means leaving and going somewhere else. Stepping out on faith. Father, speak to us today through your spirit. It's in your name we pray. Amen.